0: Hello, everyone. My name is Krista Drobak. I am the founder of Moving Health Home, a coalition to change public policy to allow seniors and all Americans to receive more care in the home. Uh, You've joined our panel today. Let's talk policy. What reforms are needed to advance care in the home? And we have um, three incredibly distinguished panelists who are experts in this field. Um, Mark Prather is the co-founder and CEO of Dispatch Health. We have Dan Sabat, the CEO of the Visiting Nurse Service of New York Association, or excuse me, Visiting Nurse Services of New York. Um, Chris Johnson, who is the VP and Head of Corporate Development for Landmark. So, um, I know we all have LinkedIn and I would, um, just want to say a couple of bullets about each of our panelists, um, but I encourage all of you to connect with them. Um, Dr. Prather has over 20 years of experience as a board-certified emergency uh, medicine specialist. Um, He also has experience managing large provider groups. Um, He has been involved in multiple medical industry startups, including iTriage, where he served as the medical director. Um, Dan Savitt, the CEO of the visiting nurse service of New York is, um, has had stints at U.S. Acute Care Solutions and Landmark Health. And he also has a background in finance and operations, which is obviously very helpful in thinking through how to um, make these business models work. Uh, Chris Johnson, again, leads corporate strategy for Landmark, and he has led and built interdisciplinary teams of clinicians, nurses, uh, and clinical administrators. Um, And so, as you can see, we've got a wide um, range of experience and all of the kinds of experience that we need to to make these care models work. So before we talk about the policy aspects of this, I want to give an opportunity for each of our panelists to talk about their business model um, and explain basically what they're trying to achieve. So um, Mark Prather, why don't we start with you, Dispatch Health.
1: Sure. Thanks, Krista. Um, Dispatch Health, we founded it back in really 2014, 2015, and we we set out on this journey to build the largest and the most comprehensive high acuity system of medical care in the home. So we put the patient back at the center and we built a clinical and technology platform that delivered highly trained providers that you used to only find in hospitals, uh, the necessary equipment and any ancillary services like radiography, ultrasonography, a moderate complexity lab, in order to provide medical care for really the highest acuity patients in their home. Uh, The system of care includes really a comprehensive set of services these days that allows us uh, to care for patients in the home. That includes high acuity on demand home treatment that really can substitute for an ER visit in home visits that facilitate the transition from the hospital or even the skilled nursing facility to the home. Uh, in-home last-mile ancillary services like radiography, ultrasonography, and lab. And then finally, 30-day in-home episodes that substitute for either a hospitalization or a skilled nursing facility stay when appropriate. And so by the end of this year, uh, I think we'll operate in about 50 markets across the country, and we're approaching uh, a million patients served. Uh, and this year, we'll generate about $350 million in medical cost sa- savings really by substituting lower cost equivalent medical services in the home for higher cost hospital ER evaluations, admissions, or
2: skilled nursing facility stays.
0: Great, thank you so much. Uh, Dan.
2: Great, thanks Krista. So for 128 years the visiting Nurse service of New York has helped the people of New York City to live, age, and heal well, really where they feel most comfortable and that's in their home and connected to their family and their community. And community isn't as uh, is, is, is of utmost importance in New York City, and uh, and we have a wide range of ways to do that, from traditional home health, home care, and hospice to a wide variety of community mental health and care management programs. We're hyper focused on driving high quality and cost efficient comprehensive care, and are willing uh, to step into unique value and risk based arrangements and partnerships that focus on improving clinical quality and patient engagement uh, while lowering that overall cost of care. And so we incorporate all the capabilities across uh, VNSNY, including the capabilities we have as a payer uh, because we have a large managed care part of our organization. And we have a long history of innovation. And so we capture all those things in order to do this in the home well. So thank you.
0: Thanks, for thanks Dan, thanks for joining us. Uh, Chris.
3: Thanks, Krista. Um, So Landmark Health was founded in 2013, um, and we provide in home primary care for seniors with complex chronic disease. Um, We do it by building physician led medical groups in our local communities that bring and coordinate care into the home of seniors to help manage chronic conditions, medications. Uh, as well as provide interdisciplinary care services to those members. So think about incorporating behavioral health, uh, nurse care management, pharmacy, social work, and other team members to really provide all of the services that these seniors need to help them live longer, um, help them live happier lives in their homes. Today, we operate in 18 states in uh, about 55 MSAs and we care for about 160,000 patients. Um, at Lamark we call them Joes and Josephines in full risk arrangements. So our, our, our partnerships with either uh, health plans or risk-bearing provider groups put us at risk for the total cost of care for all of the uh, patients that we care for. And our, our business model, is being able to provide better, more proactive primary care and extending that prim- their their community primary care into the home, and drive uh, prevent uh, avoidable hospitalizations and all the costs associated with that. And we found by doing that that we can we can really achieve three important things. One, um, we really drive great patient experience and patient satisfaction. So really consistently getting patient satisfaction in the high nineties. Two, we can dramatically improve the clinical outcomes for these patients uh, via reduced hospitalization. So we we consistently see 20 to 25% reductions in uh, hospital admissions and 20 to 25% reductions in skilled nursing days for the patients that we care for. And maybe most importantly, we actually see about a 20% reduction in mortality uh, for the patients that are under care of landmark. And finally, we're able to reduce the overall cost of care. So we're actually able to reduce the medical, uh, medical expense uh, and medical loss ratio of the patients we care for by about 20 to 25%. And that's just generating savings not only for, for Landmark, but also savings that can be reinvested by health plans and by CMS into better benefits for patients to keep them uh, home in their community.
0: Thanks, Chris. Statistics like that are incredibly important to policymakers, and I just have to uh, put a plug in here that Moving Health Home Coalition will be releasing a study in conjunction with Avalier that will feature four uh, of our members, and um, some of these statistics will be included in that because we're trying to educate policymakers on the kinds of uh, models that are available today and the successes that they've had um and of course lawmakers care a lot about quality and cost savings and we've achieved um, both of those so um thank you for tracking all of these important like uh you know doing this kind of research because this is going to help break down the policy barriers that we need to come down in order to scale these businesses Um, So as all of you, um, thank you, are members of Moving Health Home and have, by joining, um, recognized how important policy changes are to actually making care in the home a real option for all seniors. So um, I really want to just get to the bottom of some of the barriers that you're seeing on a regular basis on the ground. Um, as you know, our working groups in moving health home are hospital at home, sniff at home, so how can we help patients um, recover in the home and then all the other things that make care in the home um, you know that are necessary to to make it a reality home infusion, home pharmacy dme all the things that you wouldn 't necessarily think of as policy related to care in the home. Um, so we've got a wide breadth of, um, of things that we're trying to address, but I'd like to hear from each of you, when you think about policy, what are some of the big barriers that you'd like to see Congress um, break down over the next uh, couple of years? So let's start with you, Mark.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, well, you mentioned hospital at home, and Uh, I know we're, and we should move away from that nomenclature. Uh, So we'll we'll call it acute care in the home for now. Um, So we really don't have an adequate reimbursement model for that um, service. Uh, We have developed over time uh, contracts with managed care entities. And the way we've structured it is based upon medical literature where we said, uh, there needs to be a strong utilization management function on the front end, so that you're ensuring that these are really substitutive admissions. Um, If you look at the the body of work called hospital at home, there's a lot of people that that admit very low acuity things or just do remote patient monitoring and call it hospital at home. But what I'm talking about is true substitute of admission. Um, And then we go on to discount the payment from the existing part A and part B spend. We should be able to do this for less. And then lastly, we commit to 30 days of management in that episode um, with the goal of driving down readmissions. And, and in the literature that works, and in our model that has worked as well. We're running about a four to 5% readmission rate at 30 days um, compared to a you know, 12 to 20% in the hospital. So again, you can do this through a managed care partner, but there is no way to do it with CMS as, as the partner. Uh, there is a waiver program, and we were one of the folks that had the opportunity to put in have input there. Um, but it has significant limitations. Um, you have to start an admission in a hospital ER. We can dive into all the operational challenges of that. Uh, and I, I can speak to it, and probably Dan can as well, as ER docs don't think this way. But that starting spot um, is limiting uh, in terms of both the uptake as well as the erosion of the margin. You get a fixed payment, and if 2000 of it has to go out immediately to an ER visit, um, that's challenging. So that's one thing that needs to be addressed. Number two, we found ourselves suddenly as one of the larger providers of mobile imaging in the country. I didn't really anticipate that. But uh, for a high-acuity model, we really needed faster turnaround than we were getting with some of our partners. And so we ended up acquiring a program and have scaled that. So if I have a homebound member and I need an x-ray, well, CMS will pay for that and it'll pay for the incremental cost of taking that to the home. But what if that member needs an ultrasound or an echo, which could be maybe arguably more valuable that is not paid for? Same thing with lab, same thing with DME. So that last mile delivery for certain adjunctive services needs to be addressed if we're going to really tackle high acuity in the home. Um, And then I'll touch on one more because I know everybody else has some more, but uh, maybe removing barriers to home dialysis and um, supporting other policies that increase the access to home dialysis for Medicare beneficiaries would be great. So I won't take them all.
0: Dan, I'm sure there's something left for you to talk about.
2: (laughs) I took all the good ones. No, uh, I'm going to go in a little bit different direction, and that's around... Uh, the dual eligible population and so the lack of integration between Medicare and Medicaid and we really see this in our market and, all, and, and many markets that this that you have Medicare that pays for acute and episodic care Medicaid pays for the long-term care and for those that need it and then but the the, the as as the population ages and we see more and more frail and poor poorly resourced populations. And, and there's distinctions, these distinctions between Medicare and Medicaid really blur and they need to come together. And so we really want to incentivize and we want CMS and Congress to incentivize the states to do for around Medicare and Medicaid integration. And I would say, especially for those that have long-term support services needs, and we see it every day in New York state, we do have a we do have a plan that that is fully integrated here, but it is uh, it is not it is um, not as effective as it could be, and it's certainly not as funded. And so, continuing down this this road that I started here, um, Congress is considering plans to spend hundreds of billions of in Medicaid funds to expand access to care in the home through the home and community-based services. Uh, um, part of the, of the bill, but 75 and about 75% of Medicaid beneficiaries with those we'll call HCBS or LTSS needs, the long-term support services needs are fully duly eligible uh, for both Medicare and Medicaid, but only 10% of those are enrolled in programs that integrate the two. And so duly eligible beneficiaries are the most complex and then the most costly, and they're the most Costly to both Medicare and Medicaid, so there, uh, this population, especially the ones that need LTSS services, which is you know highly intensive in the home, the 20% of Medicare and 15% of Medicaid, the population, but a third of the cost for both programs, and so uh, we really need something that tackles this this population differently. And so integrated care management programs for homebound individuals can really leverage the value of, of regular care and care management in the home. And that will improve the overall health outcomes while reducing the cost of care, especially in Medicare, if we do it right. And so the policies, recommendation here is is Congress looks to spend these billions on HCBS expansion and workforce retention. They really need to require some level of integrated care, and that will save money uh, in the long term and incorporate all these home and community-based services into a broader strategy rather rather than just increasing the benefit and keeping the benefits siloed. We really need to bring these things together to improve the health of those that are Older, disabled, and chronically ill, and um, and then poor, so they're eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid.
0: Great, thank you, Chris. Policy barriers.
2: Yeah, um, so I'll try.
3: I'll try and add add to the list. Um, and I'm 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 guessing we're starting to build a pretty daunting list here. But um, <laughs> I th- I think um, from the from the landmark perspective, there there are a couple. One. And I think Mark hit on this a little bit earlier is a lot of the most innovative models that you see bringing new care delivery capabilities right now are happening in uh, the managed care population So, med- prim- and primarily Medicare Advantage. And I think that's because that, that program and those entities are given freedom to create new payment models and value-based payment models. Um, and those models better align with um, the patient needs or the member needs that they're caring for than traditional fee for service medicine. Um, uh, and like the case in point for, for, for landmark would be that the the rate that a landmark visit to one of our Joe's and Josephine's would be paid in Medicare fee for service or traditional Medicare only covers about 30% of our actual costs to deliver that care. Um, and the, the reason why our model makes sense is that by investing that extra upfront, we're able to reduce avoidable downstream costs uh, to the system. So yes, it's a three hundred dollar you know uh, in home medical visit, but that visit is helping to prevent you know a, a twelve thousand dollar inpatient admission, potentially twelve thousand dollars of a skilled nursing stay, uh, as well as additional you know, DME and other expenses that would, that would have happened. Um, And new payment models allow for alignment of incentives between innovative provider groups and provider organizations uh, and, uh, and the payer at the end of the day. So I I think that's like the, the the biggest opportunity in my view is uh, uh, Medicare and Medicaid both uh, need to continue to think about how do we really infuse true value-based care paradigms uh, into the market. The second I, I think opportunity, especially as we think about bringing care into the home, is that care in the home uh, is not nece- is not kind of uh, appropriate for all patients. Um, and I think that's been one of the uh, things that makes policymakers nervous about higher reimbursement rates for things in the home is well if if they could have received the same quality care, in a clinic and I'm not getting downstream savings, I'm just paying more to do things in the home. Um, and I think to, to counteract that, policymakers really need to think innovatively about how we segment uh, segment beneficiaries and members and create ways to actually introduce beneficiaries to the care models that might best meet their needs. Um, not, not necessarily mandating any type of care, but helping to educate um, especially our senior population to the new, uh, the new care delivery options that are available in their community that otherwise they might not know about, um, and, and wouldn't be able to take take advantage of. Um, and I think policymakers can really help to create, I'll call it create the market to spur more innovation in our communities. So those would be the two, the two areas that I'd push.
0: If we could uh, achieve more integrated and value-based care, we would solve a lot of problems um, because it's such a challenge to actually implement innovation in healthcare because we have such rigid rules and siloed programs. So it's it's good to hear that integration is still, and value-based care is still on the top of your agendas because policymakers have definitely moved away from thinking deeply about those topics. We had many more conversations about value-based care and, uh, and integration sort of in, you know, 2009 through 15 timeframe. Um, and we've, we've now just started talking about funding the programs, um, more intensely. So, um, it's up to us to tell the story of what can happen if we have, um, You know, better value based care arrangements and um, obviously the opportunity that Medicare Advantage offers us and the special needs plans offer us in, in demonstrating what capitated payments and at risk payments, um, and integrated programs can actually do. Um, so one thing I just want to plug is that a lot of lobbying is just about educating. And the educating lawmakers on the, these uh, integration and value based um, care challenges are, are, is really important. One of the things that I've been struggling with and want to hear from all of you on is we don't want to just move the facility based care into the home. So I've noticed in our segmentation of work groups in moving health home, we have, you know, acute care, we have primary care. We have all of the things that we need, ancillary services like home infusion and dialysis and all of the things that go along with acute care and primary care. Um, so my question is, how do we talk about moving care into the home in a way that doesn't just... Um, break down into a discussion of all the different services and, um, you know, the changes that we need to this line or that line. Um, is it, is it, I guess, an at-risk arrangement or how would you describe to a lawmaker if they said, well, don't we just need to change all of the um, policies and all of these different pieces and just say that you can do it in the home? So Mark, I know this is a hard question. I think at least it's been a hard question for me, but I'd love to hear your start, your thoughts to start.
1: Well, I think the basic premise that moving services from the hospital to the home is is not what we want to do may be wrong, because I think it is what we want to do, because um, we should be able to do at least a portion of it for lower cost. And that's because over time, the costs in the building have inflated such that that run of the mill ER visit, uh, 60 percent of them, really can be done for about a fifth the cost of that ER and and hospitalizations the same way. So I do think that there is a, uh, a benefit to shifting to that lower cost environment. The real key here, and we haven't talked about it yet, is the efficacy of the home. And I'll be frank with you. When I trained in the late 80s, early 90s, um, we didn't do house calls. Like the house call was dead. Uh, I never even heard of it. Um, and it wasn't until about 2010 that I picked up some articles from this guy named Bruce Leff uh, out of Hopkins, this, this uh, you know a maverick of a geriatrician who was hospitalizing people in the home in the late 90s. And you start to piece together this, this really big body of literature that suggests, at least for certain populations, that there is profound efficacy to be found by delivering care in the home. Um, The hospital at home literature suggests that there's a 20% mortality reduction for hospitalization in the home versus the hospital. That's better than a statin, right? That's better than any any drug. And so why is that? And so I didn't believe it at first, um, but over the course of six, seven years, I've started to believe it. And here's what I think it is. It's the data, the environmental data, and and, uh, Dan can probably speak to this as well. When you walk in that home, you instantly have more data to make a more personalized care plan. As an ER doc, I had care plan chocolate and care plan vanilla. And at the end of it, I handed you one of the two and hoped you did okay, right? And I end up with a 20 to 25% recidivism rate. At the end of my visit in the home, I can now sit down, understand that you can barely walk across the room. There's no car in the garage. Uh, There's no family members. I would be embarrassed to write, see your doctor in two days. All of a sudden that care plan becomes very personalized and I figure out how to get you a ride. So instantly for a subset of the population, we deliver better care that results in lower longitudinal utilization and less recidivism. So that's the point that we need to get across. Um, And maybe it's not for everyone, as we said, but it's for a lot of folks. Uh, I do think it's the right move.
0: So, Dan, what what are the how what kind of language would you use if Mark says we need to talk about hospital at home? We've been using care in the home. Is there other language that we could use to describe all of the things that can happen in the home? I mean, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Is there a better way we could couch this for policymakers that isn't just we're going to do a bunch of services in the home. Like, how do we say it's higher value? How do you describe it as higher value? Yeah.
2: I think it's a pretty big leap to try to get them to think that way, which is why we segment the conversation. Yeah. I mean, because, yeah. they just, but I, I, um, I agree. So maybe we
0: should say primary care in the home, hospital in the home, chronic disease management in the home. I mean, cause you, and then you, and then we can say, we can do the whole spectrum, yeah, I think
2: there's primary care. There's acute condition management. Right. And acute. That could be, you know, someone who could should be or, sh- or not should have been, but could be in the hospital. Right. But they were able to take him at home. It would encompass home health. Right. And encompass what we call sniff in the home, which is still like a little out there. We're not quite sure what that is. And I think- <laughs> Don't right, tell
0: that to policymakers because we have a bill on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Uh, but in practicality, they're kind of all the same. The acute side is the same is one area. That's what I would focus on. And then the other side is prevention, right? Like we're gonna, we're it's what Landmark does. We do it at Visitor Service of New York. Um, Mark does a dispatch team, which is we're gonna engage that that um, beneficiary longitudinally, and we're gonna keep them in the home, keep them healthier and safe. As Mark said, when you go in the home, you see everything, right? The doc doesn't see it in the primary care office. You don't see it in the outpatient clinic when they go to urgent care. You don't see it in the ER, you can see it in the home. And so what we need to do is continue to encourage these longitudinal programs. And I think things like carving in hospice is one way Uh, that we can do that so that in the last 12 months of life we can really where the in and out of the hospital is the toughest like we can start to to really hone in on those last 12 months of life and and keep that churn from happening and take care of people uh, much better as they approach that so I would probably segment into those and I would include end of life as a third bucket so end of life management acute, the acute setting, and then primary, longitudinal primary care, or um, however we want to think about that. But because they take different, uh, they take different clinical miles and different financial miles and a different set of resources and technologies. So if you bucket them in those three, I think that that might be a, a more efficient way of talking about it.
0: And Chris, landmark segments, your sort of your description of what you're doing in this way. Isn't that right? Uh,
3: we do. Um, you know, I, I'd say of Dan's buckets, we tend to uh, focus more on a longitudinal relationship with a patient. Um, so when, when we see patients, um, they, they kind of generally see us through the end of life, um, uh, maybe for five, six, seven years. Um, but they're, they're high acuity throughout, throughout that that phase and our interventions are not focused on doing things that were done in the hospital more efficiently in the home but actually can we get ahead of chronic disease exacerbations so like if someone has heart failure or copd can we get ahead of that exacerbation that often led to a hospitalization to actually kind of wipe that hospitalization off off the map um, is like the core thesis of the landmark, landmark model. And it's, it's right for a certain subset of the population. Um, we, we find it's about 10% of, uh, Medicare patients in, in a dual populations, probably 15% of patients really meet the clinical, uh, criteria where this model will drive really effective clinical outcomes that are highly differentiated from traditional brick and mortar, um, uh, medical care. Uh, so I, I, I agree with that, uh, with that premise. Um, Okay.
0: So you, let me just pivot here and talk about caregivers a little bit, because Chris, you emphasize building a relationship with the patient. That's a longitudinal, longer term relationship that might be different from an acute episode. Um, What is, what about the caregivers? How does, how do you um, I'm assuming landmark must make it a priority to also get to know the caregivers because they're your your hands while you're not there um, and so how does how does landmark think about caregivers?
3: yeah it's a, it's a, it's a really great question. Um, I mean care, caregivers are integral to the care model that we deliver um, uh, you know fortunately, many of our uh, of our patients, uh, have the opportunity to live with a caregiver, whether that's a spouse, or a family member, or a friend, um, whom they're living with in the community. Uh, an interesting stat is we we visit our patients on average eight times per year, um, for about an hour long uh, uh, visit, and we actually have seven documented interactions with their caregivers as well. So we're seeing the patient eight times a year. We're also having about seven caregiver conversations um, and using those relationships to help make sure that their eyes and ears on the patients between our visits uh, two helping the caregiver to understand how they can enable you know uh, their mother their spouse to continue to live a happy healthy life in their in their home um, and so it's, it's just a very critical part of the model and and again it's where innovative models i think like the, the folks on this call are able to do things that brick and mortar can't and I'll give you an example. Our, our our providers will often have family meetings with the family and their patient in the evening. So they'll wait till five o'clock, schedule that as the last visit of the day if they need to have a, you know, a family conversation where the, the family can all be present with the patient in their home so that everyone's on the same page. Everyone understands what's going on uh, with that patient and, and breaks down some of the communication challenges that often exist as you have you know, a, a, an elderly patient with, with, uh, serious disease. Um, and so I, I think it's just an invaluable thing. I think it's something that is really only possible as you think about home as a setting, the idea of having eight, you know, eight, eight family members show up in a doctor's office for a, a consult. I, I can't imagine how, uh, I mean, Mark, Mark's, a, Mark's, Mark's a physician so he can comment on it better than I, but that that's just not going to happen. Um, and I just wanted to make one, like one point, bringing it back to the last question you asked Krista about like what policymakers need to think about. It. And I, I think that ultimately what our patients care about is like living meaningful lives un, until they, until they, uh, until they die. And for me, the, the, there's a lot of clinical metrics that we can all look to, to measure that. But I think as a policymaker, I, I would really encourage folks to, to think about maybe some non-clinical measures as well. Think about things like are patients saying that they're having like happy, healthy days in their home. Um, we don't measure. I don't think that's like a CMS measure today. Maybe it's a CDC measure. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I, I think that's what, when we at Landmark really think about like what matters, it's are we helping our patients to be able to go to a granddaughter's wedding? Are, is our, maybe our patient wants to be able to walk to the mailbox to like get their own mail. And because that's like an exciting thing to do for the day and care in the home is how you help those outcomes become reality. Um, And it's, I know it's a little squishy, but I think it's like a paradigm shift that we need to continue to embrace uh, as we think about the future of healthcare in in the U S and really being patient centric.
0: Healthy days is a CDC measure, but I don't, it is not incorporated into any of the ways that health plans uh, or or Medicare fee-for-service thinks about quality. Um, it's not attached to star ratings necessarily. Um, so, I guess it could be incorporated into a cap survey. But I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And oftentimes, I ask people, "What would you want? Would you want to be in the hospital?" Um, and that I think conveys the same sort of thing. Is like you can't necessarily have a meaningful existence if you're sitting in an institution. Um, Mark, how do you think about caregivers in an acute episode kind of a setting? Because um, I tend to think of it as a, a long-term uh, relationship, but um, I'm wondering if someone has an acute episode and you do a, a finite number of days, um, what what is the caregiver? How do you, how does dispatch think about the caregiver role?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I am an acute care provider. And I have this interesting perspective in that, do we change our behavior? Does life change dramatically um, when you're in with your primary care doc once a year or you're having those discussions? Not always, but sometimes when people would come see me in the ER, they were at their worst, right? Or that moment was the worst. And I had a real chance to impact outcome. And so I think what we we're, we're really biased towards in, involving the caregiver. Um, and what we found is that we've been way more successful than I ever was in the building, enrolling folks in palliative care, enrolling folks in hospice um, just because we could pull that family member into the living room, spend hours in the home. That's the way our model works that, you know, if the, if the provider uh, can fix the medical problem in 15 minutes, that doesn't mean they should leave. They should figure out what else needs to be fixed. And then a lot of times, because we're not the longitudinal caregiver, we're walking out and communicating with a landmark or, or somebody else. But uh, we involve the, the family members. We actually have an app called Care Loop that they can log on and think of it as a HIPAA secure Slack channel. And so the family member, if the patient wants them, can receive all the subsequent follow up, the labs, the x-rays, the EKG, and they get looped into uh, the discussion and, and the outcome. So.
0: Um, that's great that you actually have gone as far as, uh, as having an app that loops them in. My dad gave me the credentials for my mom's electronic health record. And I was like, I don't really know what to do with this, but, um, uh, Dan workforce is a topic that is of great discussion here in Washington. We don't have enough people to care for the people today, much less, um, the seniors of the future, so how are you thinking about policy related to workforce and what we do to make sure that we 've got enough people so if we are able to change these care models that um, that we actually have the workforce to implement it
2: yeah, I think that 's a great question because in the on the home uh, care side, we have significant uh, gap right for from nurses and social workers and uh, rehab therapists and and uh, and home health aides and all basically everybody that we need to go in the home and do uh, and provide this care that we've been talking about uh, we're, we're nearing a crisis in many communities and so uh, this is something that I worry about and work on every day and one of the issues is uh, so if we separate uh, managed care which we talk a lot about because of the flexibility that managed care has from from uh, the government programs, the fee-for-service, what we typically call fee-for-service. On the managed care side, you know, we really need uh, a broader understanding of the value of what can be brought into the home. And so uh, there's still, uh, still this view of care in the home outside of the innovative models, like just Dispatch and, and landmark are great examples of what I would call innovative models. Uh, outside of those, for traditional home health and 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 the like, uh, the payment mechanism is just uh, doesn't fund for the workforce, and so we have to deal with that. Uh, there's just um, not enough adoption of the of the of more innovative models. So where the money is. And then on the traditional models like in home health and, and providing home care and on the Medicaid side, the the payment, the payments are just much too low. And so we have to the first thing we have to do is 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 if you wanna get folks out of the hospital and, and have them take care of home, you have to pay that way. Because we can't pay our 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 staff the way that we, we need to because the reimbursement just isn't there, whether it's managed care. Or a fee for service, and so that's that's where we need to start. Is we need to get money uh, into the hands of the workers um, that are going into the home. It's a really hard job. Uh, I, 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 you know, in New York, it's it's, you know, you're walking up, you're walking taking the subway, carrying a big bag and uh, walking up five floors and down five floors, going to the next visit. And then, you know, you're on the hook to do seven, eight visits a day. Otherwise, your manager is is getting all over you. And so it's a really tough model of care. And that goes for hospital home and sniff at home. It's all the same resources. It's a very difficult job that we have not recognized through the payment. So first, we got to get the money into the models and then we need to incentivize the workforce, so we need more programs like whether it's loan repayment for nurses and social workers and other paraprofessional staff. Um, so we've got to we've got to think of innovative ways to get uh, people uh, wanting to work in the community and give them an incentive to do that. Uh, so the wages have to be there. We got to attract them. Um, and then uh, we also have to think differently as well, I would add one last one that might uh, feel um, different to folks, but like on the home health aid side, and the home health aids really provide uh, just an amazing level and important uh, level of service for, uh, especially for home health and hospice uh, and for uh, LTSS type services uh, or plan, health plans. But we've got to look outside of, of our current. We got, frankly, most of our uh, home health aides are immigrant women. That's just a fact. Uh, they're hardworking. They're dedicated. They love their pa- their patients, and so we're going to need. With the way our country is is headed in terms of its population and the lack of, you know, the the, the we're getting older. Let's just uh, let's just say it. And uh, Mark and I feel that every day, and. Uh, there's just not enough workers, and we, we're going to have to solve this potentially through immigration policy and the like. But we've got to get workers, workers in the system, or all these models that we want to do and talk about and love, and they're just not going to happen because we're, the workforce just isn't going to be there.
0: Yep. Um, okay. We have a few more minutes, um, Mark. I want to ask you. You're on a. You you have a different workforce that you're dealing with. Like, how do you how do, What is the profile of a physician who yeah. would transition from an ER job to an in-home job?
1: Yeah, I've learned a lot over the last years. Um, so I, I just assumed that I could hire uh, an ER provider, an ICU nurse, uh, you know, uh, a doc from the hospital ward, give them a couple of days of training and everything would be good. Um, It doesn't work that way. Um, And so over the last five years, we've really created our own training program. We call it Dispatch Health University. It takes weeks to complete. We monitor for an entire year. And and the education is really uh, reorienting this this highly qualified facility-based care provider to the home, the etiquette of the home, the reemphasis on clinical exam and history. Over the course of my thirty-year career, we forgot how to do that. Right? Everyone just went into a CAT scanner. Um, we need to educate our clinicians, on frankly, on acute clinicians, on longitudinal care and and some of the efficacy of, you know, addressing some of the social situations that we find, and and that just doesn't exist. I, I alluded to it, but the home almost is has been viewed as a second-class site of service forever. And if we were to think about policy, that all, if all it did was validate and normalize the home as a site of care, that would be a big plus for us in terms of recruiting. Um, but as it stands, I end up getting mavericks, right? I get these like uh, folks who are, are dis, disenchanted with the hospital based level of care. They want to do something unique. Uh, and so that's my workforce today. But we're 1,700 folks today, and we'll probably be. 3,000 by the end of this year. It's just the way we grow. And it's hard. It's hard to attract. So,
0: Chris, have you noticed over time that your uh, practitioners have stayed with the home-based care? Do you think that there is, I mean, did they see the, you know, did did they find professional fulfillment in, in going into the home rather than a facility?
3: You know, um, yes, I I think our experience is probably somewhat similar to, uh, to Mark. Um, so, you know, the, the hardest roles for us as we continue to grow to, to find our physicians and advanced practice providers. Um, I would say we, we typically have had two, two, two types of folks that are drawn to our model. Um, one is, uh, actually, you know, the, the former marks of the world, the guys, guys and and women who were ED physicians who kept seeing the same patients come in and saying like, why, why are they not getting better care in the community to prevent what, why do they keep coming in with a heart failure exacerbation? This, this patient should never be coming through by door. Um, so that's, that's kind of one bucket that we've seen. And then the other are geriatricians, um, our model, um, is very aligned with the geriatric model of care, which is combining, I I think of as, you know, great longitudinal primary care with a deep understanding of the patient and what's important to them. Um, I think over time, we are starting to attract physicians who really want to get off the fee-for-service, like treadmill, um, and be able to Always make decisions that are in the um, uh, that affords them to make decisions that are in the best long term interest of patients. Being able to spend more time with them, if necessary, because we're not billing fee for service. Being able to see them more frequently, if that's going to drive better outcomes. Our model of care is really enabled that. I don't think all all physicians understand that, and all all providers understand that there can be a different way to practice medicine, and so. To some degree, there's, I think, a lot of um, opportunity to better explain that and and, and maybe give exposure to uh, advanced practice providers and physicians as they're training. Um, but then the the second big thing is similar to Mark, we've had to build, we call it Landmark Academy. Um, it's, it's almost a month before you see a patient at Landmark when you're hired as a clinician. Um, as we go through and we just teach you about care in the home, teach you about what it means to deliver value-based care, because it's you, you're, the types of questions that you're asking and the way that you think about guiding interventions is, is, is different. Um, and then we continue to refresh that uh, every year. Um, every year, there's a seven-week course that all of our providers go through called Master's Academy to continue to bolster um, their ability to deliver really world-class care uh, in the home. And I'd say like finally, and I, I think Mark touched on this a little bit, the the really interesting thing is in value-based care, I think it's a very empowering, it can be very empowering as like the primary care physician or the acute kind of uh, urgent care uh, type interventions that Mark's team does at dispatch, because um, you have as much time as you want with that patient and you are, you're, you're in an organization that's telling you, hey, use all of the skills that you had for medical training to do everything you, you can, spend as much time, spend as many resources, as long as you're helping that patient stay at home and healthy and stay home and stay healthy, um, which um, not, not criticizing other, other kind of systems of medicine, but I think it's harder to do that in fee, the fee-for-service world.
0: Thank you. So we are out of time. Um, I wanna thank all, all of you For incredibly thoughtful comments. I think someone walking into uh, this conversation without having known anything would learn a lot um, about the policy barriers and the things that we're working on together through Moving Health Home. Thank you for being involved in Washington and putting time and resources into helping uh, educate policymakers and really change some of these uh, policy barriers because I know that when I'm a senior, I want to receive care in the home. I want my parents to um, receive care in the home as soon as possible. So um, thank you for your involvement, because um, I know it's sometimes hard to explain to your board um, how important investments in government affairs can be, because <laughs> um, everyone's busy trying to you know, build a business and make their business better. But government affairs is critical in this um, regard. So thank you, and thank you for participating today.